I, there's nothing worse than a Tibetan pit latrine. I will, <laughs> I will go to my grave thinking that. And you know what? It, it, Larry, the Singaporean, whose parents are Chinese, and he'd been he'd driven through Tibet twice before, and he said to me, "It's like it's like when you're here, you'll be asking why did I come." Uh, you know, it is real hardship. You know, you're freezing cold, you can't breathe, uh, long, long days of driving. He says, but I guarantee you, you know, in a year or so's time, you sat at home thinking, when can I go back? Hmm. And I did not believe him at the time. Uh, but, but watching the footage when we were editing the series, it is just stupendous. And the Tibetan Plateau is, you know, it's one of the most curious and brilliant sort of, you know, um, biospheres on Earth. Welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I am your host, Byron Pace. This is episode 214, and this is a Modern Huntsman production. In this week's episode, we have somebody who embodies the title of this podcast, Into the Wilderness, Alex Beskeby. He is the man behind a recent overland adventure from Singapore back to the UK, which replicates a historic overland expedition uh, that went the other way around. So he did it in reverse. But you're going to hear all about that in this show. Uh, and better than that, once you hear this and you get enthused by the story, you're only about a week away from being able to get your hands on the book and watch the TV series. And all the details of that are going to be in the description of this show. Or just go and visit lastoverland.com. We are busy working on Volume 10, Modern Huntsman, right now. And actually, it has a book extract and an intro from Alex, who you're just about to hear from, along with a selection of photos from the expedition. But if you haven't got your hands on Volume 9 yet, uh, you can go over to modernhuntsman.com and order that and get it shipped to your door right now. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, uh, then this must be the first time that you've listened to the podcast. So head over to that website and you'll be able to read all about the biannual publication uh, of which I am the conservation editor. It's a spectrum from conservation stories to adventure stories and the sustainable use of natural resources and hunting and fishing and gathering and sustainable farming. All of the goodness that is the kind of world that we want to live in is in the pages of Modern Huntsman. But two more things quickly before we get into the interview. First of all, a thank you to uh, my Patreon supporters. And in the top tier this week, it includes Richard McNeil, Ronnie Speakman of RD Contracting, James Marchington, the guys at South Esher Stalking, Thomas Cameron, Mark Zabrowski, and Colin Knight. If you would like to support the podcast at any level, head over to patreon.com forward slash Byron Pace, and you can see how you can help uh, support these shows and make sure that I can keep putting them out um, for free for everybody every two weeks. I have also just released, well, two weeks ago, I released the trailer for a film that I've been working on for the last two and a half to three years, Paid in Blood. That is on my YouTube channel. I'd love it if you could go and check it out. Uh, just search Byron Pace Film on YouTube or Paid in Blood, and it should come up. Uh, it's about a two and a half minute uh, trailer, and then I talk for about two and a half minutes about uh, what I'm trying to do and why I wanted to tell the story. Uh, the film is in post-production right now, but we definitely need some help to just get it over the finish line. Um, it's going to be a full feature-length film, but you can learn all about it by going and watching the link, which will also be in the description of the show. And with all of that said, let's welcome Alex Bescoby to the podcast. Alex, welcome to the Into the Wilderness podcast. I'm kind of, I'm a, I'm a little bit upset that we're not doing this, well, firstly in person, which we had originally planned, but more importantly than that, I feel like this podcast should have been done in a Land Rover. I completely agree. Um, <laughs> Particularly a series Land Rover. And the reason for this is going to become very apparent to the listeners who maybe at this point, unless you've bothered to read the text that I write with every podcast, which I don't think anybody does, will have no idea where this is going. Um, but that would have been fun, or maybe a little noisy and creaky. Absolutely. Well, having just shot a four-part series inside a Series 1 Land Rover, I can tell you that uh, the audio is a nightmare. Uh, yeah, it must you have be. To get used to shouting and losing your voice if you want to have any sort of conversation in a 60-plus-year-old yeah. car. So. <laughs> Definitely good Good for the visuals, terrible for the audio, I think. <laughs> so uh, we're going to talk about this remarkable modern-day 
overland adventure that you did. But I think it's important before, well, just tell people in like a couple of sentences what the journey was that you took. And then we're going to press pause and we're going to explain the background, like foundation to this, because it really goes back a couple of decades. Absolutely. No, and thank you. Thank you again for having me on to talk about it. No, no, it's great. So like, t- tell me what, what, was the, what was the journey? Just like g- give people an idea of the route and then we're going to go back in time as to where this really started before you were probably before you were born, I guess. <laughs> just, just a few years. Um, very succinctly, in August 2019, so almost exactly three years ago, um, I decided to drive from Singapore all the way back to London in a 64-year-old Land Rover. Um, so you're mad. Yeah. We're <laughs> having physio, to be honest. Uh, from it. So crossing through, yeah, across two continents, um, 23 countries, uh, and it was roughly 13,000 miles. Uh, and it took uh, almost four months. So that, wow. that was the journey. Okay, okay. Why? Why, why, is, the, uh, <laughs> why is the big question here? <laughs> I often ask and myself. this is the his, and this is the history. I mean, there's a there's a why personally here, but there's also like a historic why, and this this is this is the reason I asked the question because, in some way, you're not the first person to do this. No, precisely. We were very much we were recreating what has been called the greatest road trip of all time, um, which was the 1955 first overland. Uh, so it was a journey that was. Uh, completed by six guys back in 1955, so just 10 years after the end of the world of World War II. And they decided in a world that was sort of opening up, and even though the Cold War was definitely frosting, um, the world had become a slightly more peaceful place. And they decided to be the first to drive from London to Singapore. No one had ever done it before. People had tried. They got to India uh, fairly regularly, but no one had ever got past what was then Burma, down through Thailand, Malaysia, and to Singapore, which is sort of the furthest you can go on the on the on the Asian sort of the Eurasian landmass from London. What was um, the barrier? Like, what, what was what? Why did people fail before? Do you know? Uh, one word: Burma. Oh, it was just it was <laughs> that they couldn't get they weren't allowed through Burma. Yeah, that's a really yeah. interesting part of the story. Um, so I'd been living in Burma for or Myanmar as it is now for for almost ten years when I sort of started coming up with this idea. And the reason I discovered, one of the reasons I stumbled on this story of the first overland was they were the, the, the last recorded guys to drive along a stretch of road um, that went from northeast India into China called the Stillwell Road. And that road was battered through the jungles of northern Burma by the Americans during World War II. Weirdly, when America and China were allies in the war against Japan, um, it was a road that was was designed to supply the Chinese troops fighting against Japanese to get American and allied arms and weaponry through to them. And so before World War II, no road existed that you could go from India through to Thailand. Just Burma was in the way. And it wasn't until the Americans were sort of, you know, with the necessity of war, decided to just bulldoze this ridiculous road through northern Burma. And, I mean, sadly, it kind of was strategically pointless because they never really got to use it. The war ended just as it was finished. But um, the first overland took advantage of this road, set off in 55, and, and drove along it to get into Thailand just before it crumbled away into the jungle for the last time. Wow. So that was the window of opportunity that they they had, which is why they were able to do it and, and no one had been able to do it, you know, before the war or, or shortly afterwards. Right. Okay. So how did, how did their journey come about? Cause that's well, quite intriguing in itself. And the book it's called the, it is sitting in my bookshelf downstairs. It is called the first overland, isn't it? It is. Yeah. It's yeah. an amazing book. Um, so six guys, uh, from, well, five guys from Cambridge university, they were all undergrads at that time. And then one guy from Oxford, um, you know, talk about expeditions and you know, this idea of doing branded expeditions. Very stoic and British, isn't it? Oh, yeah. But it's also, <laughs> what I love about it is we think about these, you know, these ideas of getting sponsors to, to go and, you know, sponsor people doing ridiculous things as some sort of kind of very modern, you know, sort of turn of the century or 21st century thing. 
Yeah. This was absolutely front of mind. They had a crazy idea and they wanted to get brands out there to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they, they thought, these guys, that by branding it the Oxford and Cambridge Far Eastern Expedition, it would kind of conjure this romance. Um, and it did, and it worked. And, and Land Rover were one of the first companies to come in. Um, and then the BBC followed shortly afterwards. And this is one of the best parts of the story. So when they managed to get Land Rover and, and the BBC in, uh, the person they had to convince at the BBC was a young television producer called David Attenborough. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense as to why he wrote the Ford late exactly. many years later in the first book. It's bonkers. There's this lovely picture online. Wow. You just Google David Attenborough, you know, this fresh-faced 20-something uh, producer who essentially opened his door to these six young lads who said, oh, you want to drive, you want to do something that no one's ever done before. Mm. And um, he said, go on then. Well, I'll give you a film reel that will get you as far as Turkey and send me whatever you get from Istanbul. And if it looks good, I'll send you some more uh, film reel. And so with Land Rover backing it, because this was for them a real product test, they they just only bought- It must have been perfect for Land Rover. Yeah. Yeah. Well, only eight years earlier, the, you know, the thing had been conceived, the Land Rover as a, as a model, you know, and the cars that they took was the Series 1, the very first Land Rover. So for them, it was a way of showing, you know, this, this cutting-edge technology and showing its capabilities. Um, so, so you had this kind of dream partnership. The cutting event. edge. <laughs> it's kind of laughable now, isn't it? it but is. at the time, at the time it was, it really was. I think you know, and I had to kind of constantly put my head back into that frame of mind because, you know, it's easy to, to, when you get in this thing now, and we can come on to the story of the car, but, you know, it is rickety. It's got no power steering, no disc brakes, um, you know, no central heating, no um, uh, no synchromesh gearbox. You know, all this is very, very basic uh, in our terms, car technology. But then it was astounding. And I think 64 years on, you know, we were doing it in the original car. Um, it still worked, a treat. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I was going to say without breaking down, but let's not spoil that for now. Mm. Um, <laughs> well, that was a question, yeah, not a statement. Right. <laughs> um, and and their, in, in summary, their journey in terms of feet and things that they faced along the way, what was it like for them? Well, I think the reason, yeah, yeah, the reason it became, I think, such an iconic trip was not, I think, not just because they completed it in six months you know, with no GPS, uh, no no internet, no, no, no mobile phones, nothing like that, just sort of paper maps and letters and telegrams if needed. I love it. Uh, it yeah, an amazing thing. You know, it, it, um, the fact that they did it obviously sort of put them on the, you know, in the history books. But then it was because Tim Slasser, one of the, one of the, um, what the a legend, decided to write this book, which still, I mean, it's still in print now, what, 67 years after uh, it was it was it was first written, and it is still a masterclass in in great sort of pithy, you know, sort of just stiff off a lip travel writing. It truly is, yeah. yeah. And it's a picture of a world, you know, from um, you know in in 1955 when the British Empire was still in very in many ways still very present. You know, the the Cold War was just settling in. World War Two was just receding into the rearview mirror. Um, you know, it was a very, very different world. And, you know, they were able to, you asked me about the route before, you know, they they drove right through the Middle East. They went sightseeing in Lebanon, Syria, Iran, Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan. You know, they were sort of tootling through the deserts of Afghanistan, camping, you know, things that we would love to do today, but would be the risk tolerance a little bit high. Yeah. You get this picture of a world that in many ways, very different, but, you know, for them, places like China and the whole of Central Asia and large chunks of Eastern Europe, completely off limits. Yeah. Wow. What a, I mean, there's something about, and I I know that uh, you and I, and there's a couple of mutual friends we have who share this, uh, this inherent desire as humans, which I think has been somewhat lost in the more modern ear to, to explore. Hmm. to to see places and there's maybe something very selfish in that because you you're often just doing it for yourself because it's something that you you want to do but i think we all have that in us still 
this this it's it's it, on a on a on a very basic level it's like you're fishing the you're fishing a river which which I do because I love to fish and mm. if it's a river I've never been on before you just want to see round the next bend <laughs> like that's it's a very small example and it it, it is that that I want to know what I don't know. I want to see the things I haven't seen. Mm. And, and maybe nobody's seen. It's very unlikely these days that nobody's seen it. But, you know, there, there are still places in the world that very few, if any, people have been for a long period of time. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's exciting. I get very excited about adventure stories. And if you throw a Land Rover in there as well, which I happen to be... <laughs> I'm probably a little bit more than a fan, <laughs> which clearly you are too. Then it's like it's like the perfect uh, it's the perfect combination for me, and it harks back to that uh, you know the, the Camel Trophy era as well. Mm. Mm. Well, I think I mean as a sort of to get a bit poetic, but you know as a sort of storytelling vehicle, a 64 year old Land Rover is just perfect. It is. Because, you know, exactly what you just said there about, you know, looking around the next corner and just wanting to go to places and see what comes next. You can travel maximum 60 miles an hour in this thing. And, you know, wherever you are, Down, you downhill. know how cold it is outside, <laughs> you know how hot it is outside, you know how wet it is outside. You know, the elements come through the cracks. And, you know, as opposed to driving a modern car, you have to be so present when you're driving a 64-year-old Land Rover because you can't daydream. You really, you, you have to be on it. Oh, you've got to it's be able to drive. Incredibly present, you know, and you're yeah. taking it all in. You can't, you can't be sort of listening to the radio. You can't be just daydreaming out the window, listening, you know, listening to a podcast or something. You're, you're in it. And I think the way that people responded to the fact that we were driving this beautiful old car, you know, the, the car that had done it the first time around. I think if I hadn't mentioned that, that's kind of no. We're going to get into oh, that. Yeah. yeah, the point of you know of our recreation. The way that people responded to us was, you know, it was half the charm because a lot of people were just thinking, what the hell are you doing uh, driving this kind of rust bucket uh, <laughs> you know, through Tibet or, you know, through Uzbekistan or, you know, through the sort of the mountains of Nepal. And that meant that everyone you met was instantly sort of warmly disposed. And it gave for, you know, someone as a, who makes films and writes books, it gives you the most beautiful encounters with people who think who who start off by thinking you're nuts yeah. uh, which is always a kind of safe way to meet people <laughs> it, it truly is you're absolutely right yeah <laughs> but no you're right i mean about that yeah I, that that sort of innate desire to to wander and to to explore absolutely i mean the the one of the best things about this journey was just the the opportunity to indulge that urge you know scratch that itch for four months and just um, you know, as opposed to flying, you know, you just forget how much we miss when we fly. Oh, huge! Um, you know, these we, you know, I often do. One of those people who stands at the back of airplanes and like looks out of those little windows um, while everyone else is asleep and just trying to figure out where I am. And I go, well, look, oh, that's Saudi Arabia. Or you know, I used to fly. I used to live. You know, lived in Myanmar for a long time. And I I used to fly quite regularly from London to Bangkok or London to Yangon. And you know, I'd often just think about where I was and then. When I was driving through Central Asia or through China or, you know, through Southeast Asia, I'd look up at the planes thinking, oh, that was me once. And <laughs> I'm grappling through the monsoons or, you know, I stood next to it while it was broken down. It gives you a sense of how big the world is, which air, I think air travel cheats you of. Yeah, it does because it's all it's it's not it's almost like teleporting. It's very immediate by comparison. I think you you bring up an interesting point about the speed, which is that we live in a very fast world. Like, and everything we do, whether it just be our lives in general, we're we're always we're always watching the the clock. Everything mm -hmm. has to be done at a time. You got a Zoom call. You have to be on a podcast call at three at, at one thirty. Yeah. <laughs> and we're we're just we're watching the, those seconds continually because we have so many things, and it makes the day go really fast. And we mm -hmm. we drive in, in cars that cruise and cruise control at seventy five miles an hour along the motorway, and we jump in planes and we're on fast trains. And you do miss pretty much everything that is going on around <laughs> you, and we do a lot to distract ourselves from seeing what is going on around us like yeah listening to podcast or uh, no, don't stop listening to podcast people um, <laughs> but yeah you know, music or podcast. whatever music. it is and um as somebody who also owns uh an old land rover and multiple land rovers uh 
I spent a lot of time like listening to the engine and listening to the environment because uh, surprise, surprise, you kind of have to just in case yeah. something's going wrong. But it, it puts you it puts you in the environment and it makes it more than just uh, to to steal a very old cliche about uh, driving Land Rovers, which is not said with any kind of fondness by people who say it. Um, is that it's not just a journey; it's normally an adventure because something might go wrong. <laughs> but there's yeah, something in that. To make friends, right? It was yeah. constantly breaking down. I said, you, I was always astounded about how Oxford, the car we were in, you know, had this amazing capacity to sort of total itself right by a garage, <laughs> itching. You know, you know, the, the guys in like Turkmenistan or you know in northeast India getting their hands on a Series One Land Rover. Um, you know, actually, to be fair, Turkmenistan was the only country where people weren't happy to see it. I mean, why? It, they were just—they were so baffled by what we were doing. I said, in every other country we went to, people were sort of like, um, you know, I'd say delightfully baffled. They found it funny. They found it interesting. The Turkmen, uh, you know, the, the, the Turkmen that we met—they just didn't understand the whole idea. They were saying, "So, where are you going? Why don't you have a job?" Where are your family? <laughs> Who's paying for this? Uh, it's all really valid questions. Yeah. Uh, you know, what I don't understand, like, you know, I literally do not understand the concept of traveling just to travel. I mean, this yeah. is one of the most repressive countries on earth. You know, it lets in fewer uh, tourists than the North Korea every year. And it's a oh, wow. strange, you know, absurd dictatorship. But, you know, on the, on the sort of, on this, this is what's brilliant about traveling in the way we did, just meeting ordinary people rather than having to interact with the government. They were just baffled by the idea of travel for travel's sake. That was the first thing. They were then baffled at why we would choose to do it in a Land Rover. I've got this great, um, I mean, it's in the show, this great interaction with the mechanics where um, they're kind of getting angry saying, because Oxford had had a particularly bad breakdown in Turkmenistan. And they said, why didn't you come in a BMW? Or a Toyota. Toyota. Loads of parts for BMWs and Toyotas. This is ridiculous. I've never seen this thing before. And then we had to sort of calm him down and say, look, this thing is so old that we, you can machine the parts for this. Mm-hmm. And he sort of you know, got, out, got out of his grump and had a look at it. He's like, oh, you're absolutely right. I didn't realize how simple this thing is. Yeah, I mean, I can, you know, I've got an old sort of spin dryer around the back that I can probably take something out of. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, you can fix was, it with a spoon. I was genuinely annoyed yeah. that we hadn't come in a BMW, <laughs> uh, which I just thought was hilarious. Everywhere else, you know, in Northeast India, particularly like Darjeeling, you know, we had a guy, um, you know, Land Rovers have obviously a long history in, in yeah, India, they do. particular tea plantations. And this guy called um, uh, Gurung, uh, he uh, he just was this tiny little hangdog man who, um, he was sort of the greatest Land Rover mechanic in, in the town. <laughs> and once he wheeled his car in from thinking that he would like break into a smile, nothing, absolutely no expression. But he just got, sort of got in the car and he completely dismantled it, everything, the whole engine. And he cleaned it, and he put it back together again in two days. Oh and I remember sort of halfway through thinking, "What the hell is this guy doing?" But Why? for him, Why did he do just, this? It was just—I think for him, it was a once in a in a kind of light opportunity to dismantle a series one, and particularly an iconic series one, and put it back together again. Wow! So you, do, yeah, you do make a lot of friends, and it's uh, you know, as, as I said, it just turning up in this kind of clanking, you know, um, rusty old thing. It really sets people well disposed <laughs> absolutely so just to rewind a second <laughs> we're getting we're getting deep into your journey <laughs> where i mean how you said you thought about it for a long time it would be such a cool thing to do there's lots of adventures that have happened historically that i've thought to myself i want to freaking do that let's do that again and i haven't done it so <laughs> at what point does it become a reality and how on earth did you find one of the Land Rovers that did the original journey? I mean, that, that's, that's the, the best question because that's, that's kind of the inciting incident of the whole thing, really. So just to rewind a bit, so when the first Overland finished back in 1956, so they set up in 1956, they managed to sort of ship and drive their way back to London over another six months. And the cars became, you know, quite famous by this point. And lots of people wanted to borrow them to go on on new expeditions. And um, somebody borrowed, a guy called Terence Bendixson, borrowed uh, Cambridge, the light blue car. And he decided to drive it through the Middle East. And he ended up totaling it into a ditch somewhere on the Turkish-Iranian border. 
and he was dragged out sort of half conscious with a broken leg. No idea where he crashed it, you know, hospitalised. And since then, Cambridge has vanished into history. No, he, he sort of rough, he's still alive, Terence, but he, he sort of roughly knows where it is. But whether it was just, you know, still there or whether it's been hauled for scrap, either way, not the kind of place you want to be digging around in as a Brit um, on, that, on that particular border. So Cambridge vanished, essentially. Oxford got sent um, on a bird watching expedition with the Royal Ornithological Society. Um, to a place called Ascension Island, yep, um, I know. which is one of the most remote sort of, it's, you know, it's one of the British overseas territories, still is. Um, and um, then it stayed there for about 10 years um, and no one could be bothered to bring it home. So one of the guys who'd been involved in the birdwatching expedition, one of the local support team, he was from St. Helena, which was an island sort of relatively next door. It's, it's, in the, it's near nowhere, frankly. I mean, St. Helena was where they sent Napoleon after Waterloo <laughs> to, to hide him so that he couldn't I didn't, I didn't know that it's an amazing story it was sent there because it was it was British owned and it was a it had been sort of a coaling station I'm oh, sorry that's, no I can't remember that I'm gonna get my history mixed up there it became or uh, but Ascension Island certainly was when uh, this is too early but when it became quite a strategic uh, useful piece of rock but at that point it was just a piece of rock and they sent Napoleon there because he had a nasty habit of escaping um, and he died there um, and his body was shipped back to Paris, but he died on this tiny island. And um, anyway, this this guy called Melvin took his took took Oxford back with him and left it rusting in his back garden, um, and started cannibalising it for parts for his other Land Rover that he had. Until um, 2017, when this mad Yorkshireman called Adam Bennett, uh, who loved collecting Land Rovers, and he was obsessed with the first Overland, and people knew where this car was. You know, people had talked about getting it back, but. Adam was sort of a, a particular kind of um, a, a particular character and just decided to um, get the car back, put it in a box, brought it way back to York and, and refurbished it. And it was shortly after that that I bumped into Adam at the um, 70th anniversary of uh, Land Rover. Uh, there was a, a party being held at Red Wolf Bay in Anglesey, really not far from where I'm right now. And Adam was there, and that, that's where I met him. And that's kind of a fateful meeting. Really. Just just by chance? Yeah. I, I mean, it was weird because I had been reading about um, the first Overland. Because I said I was, was living in I was living in Myanmar at this time. And I said I'd, I'd, I'd come across them, had this sort of idea of maybe recreating the Stillwell Road uh, drive, you know, going to see if it was still there. And I went to, spoke to Adam, and I, I said, well, what, you know, what do you think about me using this for a kind of, taking it to Burma and using it. He said, well, you can use it, but you can only use it if you recreate the entire journey. Wow, okay. <laughs> and so he kind of called my bluff. And then, and then he said, well, you know, if you're, if you're up for it, there's a guy you've got to speak to. And this is sort of the second fateful meeting of, of it. And he said, well, the, Tim Slesser, the guy who wrote the book and did the journey, he is A, still alive, and B, he's itching to do this journey again. What? And he's been trying to, to recreate this journey uh, for God, probably like 10 or 15 years. Jeez. Um, and how old is he at this point in 2017? 87. 87. 87. So it was kind of, I met Adam, we had this car, you know, and it worked. Um, and then I went to meet Tim and I sort of said, well, I honestly thought I would go around to his house and just sort of get his blessing and he might, he might come along, you know, for the start or whatever. And he said, no, no, I'm, I'm going to do it with you. And so <laughs> I, I again had my sort of, my boss called, I thought, and I thought, well, I'm a kind of, you know, you're in a story that's bigger than, so much bigger than you, and you can't get off the train. Yeah. And uh, you can't say no to him. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> the man, you know, the man, I had my doubts, you know, but on paper, but when you meet it, extraordinary sort of um, energy and life in the man. And this sort of sense of, you know, talk about that kind of, that exploring instinct. You know, this is a man that, he did the first Overland when he was 22 and spent the rest of his life traveling around the world, making films, writing books. You know, the first Overland was just to start. <laughs> um, so when I met him, yeah, it was, it was these kind of weird meetings where I thought, right, you know, the doors are opening left, right and center here. This has to happen now. And so we, we, we raised funds and we got sponsors in. And as I said, sort of almost exactly three years ago, we were in Singapore uh, with Tim, with the car at the start line of the Singapore Grand Prix, because why not? 
And um, we had 95 Land Rovers behind us uh, from all over Singapore. We closed the roads through central Singapore and we, and we set off. That's remarkable. And there's some really beautiful footage of you and... Um... Tim. Yeah. Yeah, no, so, yeah, with, with Tim. Was that, where was that shot, that footage that I would have seen? And he's, he's, he's talking about driving, like how you've really got to drive a mm. car and this is real driving and you know, none of this modern rubbish. Well, he's just, he's a brilliant character. It's, it's, you know, I make films for a living and when you meet someone like that, you just go, okay, well, I've got Made a, for a story here. Yeah. Uh, and he's also, I mean, he's a documentary filmmaker. He worked for the BBC for decades, you know. He knows what he's doing as well. So it was a dream to work with this kind of old, old hand. Uh, but that was in that was in York, actually. Okay, I thought it was here. So th- was this prior to? So when was that shot? November twenty eighteen. Okay. So when we were doing the fundraising, we had to have some, you know, as you know, some sort of proof of concept to kind of yeah. tease it. So Lots of people well, have uh, great ideas, but not that many people can execute them. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, I think that was the thing. You know, on paper. Um, it looked like a good idea, but it also looked dangerous and expensive, right? And that, that puts people off. So I think my, my, my tactic was to just show how amazing Tim as a character was. Okay. And I had this instinct that, look, you know, everybody will get the story of, you know, the old adventurer going on his last great mission. You know, that is, it's cross-cultural, it's cross-generational. This man has a dream. It's bonkers. But let's root around him. Let's get around him and let's help him pull it off. And it honestly was, you know, just the, just the ticket. Everybody got that instantly. Um, and that's where it kind of snowballed after filming that stuff in Yorkshire. Okay. So now you're, you're in Singapore. He's there with you. Indeed. Okay. Uh, and then, well, like any good adventure story, there's a plot twist. Yeah. Um, so Tim, who you know, sort of defying all expectations. He'd, he'd actually been in intensive care a few weeks earlier with a kind of old health problem. You know, everything just kept getting thrown at us in the run-up to this. But he'd managed to get on a plane, come to Singapore, come to the start line. He was going to get in the car and just basically go until he couldn't go anymore. And that night, he essentially collapses. And we, we try and go and find him that morning. We've got, you know, thousands of people waiting at the start line, all this press lined up, the cars, you know, Sort of 18 months of prayer. And Tim is in an ambulance on his way to hospital. Wow. Uh, so we, we had sort of prepared a backup just in the case that you know, the 87-year-old might, might you know, fall at some point during the journey. And we'd have, Tim and I had this idea that if and when he needed to duck out, which I think people would have understood, um, that his grandson would take his place. Okay. And his grandson, Nat, um, was the same age as Tim had been. So there's this lovely... Oh, that's brilliant. And, but unlike, you know, unlike his grandfather, who by the time Tim went on the expedition, he'd already been uh, in Malaysia fighting uh, as part of his national service. So he was pretty, he was a pretty well-traveled 21-year-old. Yeah. Um, But Nat was a sort of typical, you know, 2019 teenager. He'd like just graduated, (laughs) a bit hungover. Yeah. Hadn't really traveled very much. You know, I'd heard, his, I'd heard his grandpa talking about this forever, a bit dismissive of the whole thing. And we threw him into this, um, you know, for the, essentially the gap year of his life. And while we were obviously devastated um, that Tim ended up going to hospital, he is fine. Uh, you know, he came through, which was a massive relief to all of us. And he's still around and, and still doing fine now. Uh, he's 91 this year. Um the, the, the story took this whole new dimension, which was about the grandson reliving his grandfather's adventure from four years earlier while his grandfather got to watch. Um, and, you know, again, as a sort of storyteller filmmaker, I was a bit discombobulated right at the beginning because we built this whole story around him. But then I slowly came to see that this was kind of a genius twist that actually there was something even more endearing and even more interesting about watching Nat go through this than watching Tim go through it. Yeah. And wow. he just turns out to be a fantastic character. <laughs> like, you know, he's a chip off the old block. He's just brilliant. And, and I'm so grateful to him for just trusting us and just throwing in his lot with this, you know, absolutely bonkers endeavor. And how much did you go through all of the, the old footage that existed from the original trip? 
Well, I mean, we, we went through it. I mean, went through it with a pretty fine tooth comb before we left. So there's about 80 minutes of it um, that's in colour, which is incredible. Uh, no sound. So just um, just colour soundless, you know, but it's, it is beautiful. And, you know, polishing it up, um, you know, in, in we just literally this week delivering the final episodes to Channel 4. And you'll be amazed at the quality of this footage after all these years. Utterly beautiful. Really? You know, the colour, the depth, it's just, I mean, we're so lucky because that's what I think sets this story apart from, you know, just being a road trip story. Yeah. It's a road trip through time because, you, you know, in some places we're quite literally driving on exactly the same road. You know, we had quite a lot of fun recreating photos of Oxford. Yeah, I was going to ask that. That must have been brilliant. Yeah. It was great. And, you know, there's some, you know, in the book, actually, if you, um, in, in the hardback version, this in just in the kind of inside covers, the publishers have put these recreations and I'm really proud of them. You know, there's one in Darjeeling where Oxford is driving alongside this sort of toy train uh, that was from the 1880s. And, you know, you could barely tell it apart, you know, and another one in northern Myanmar where there's during the Thinjan celebrations where there's all these ladies throwing buckets of water at Oxford and, and recreated that, you know, and one of the most endearing moments where we, we, we quite literally went back to a house that Tim had stayed at in 1955 um, and we called him and he couldn't believe it. Cause at first we were saying, Oh, you know, we're, we're in the, uh, you know, we're in this tea plantation in Northeast Indies. Oh no way. You know, the same, the same plantation is like, yeah, I mean, <laughs> we're actually sat in the living room. You know, where, you know, where you stayed. He said, I can't believe it. And because for various reasons, it barely been touched since the 50s. So, you know, we see photos of the, the house and, and then and in terms of just reliving history, you could almost feel the ghosts around you, you know, to have Tim's voice on a speaker coming in. It was bizarre. That's and remarkable. Um, uh, you know, and, and that for me is what is the real charm of this series was being able to bring the past to life a bit. Well, I I don't want you to give too much of the story away because the the series is um, when does the series first air? October the third, so it's okay. going on all four. So it's it's an all four exclusive. Um, so it's going on the streaming first. Okay, um, which is which is exciting. So you'll be able to actually binge all four episodes. Ah, oh, that's amazing. That's how, that's how I like to consume stuff. Like this. <laughs> <laughs> October the third. Um, I can't wait. I mean, the, yeah, I said the. You know, first conceived of this, uh, yeah, three and a half years ago, almost four years ago, and in fact, yeah, more than four years ago. So I think early twenty, early twenty eighteen, where we now we're getting to late twenty twenty two. So about a year of my life has gone into each of these episodes. That's so I hope amazing. I hope people enjoy them. <laughs> I, I feel for you. I, I totally get it. I'm just uh, getting towards hopefully the end of a three year project. So well, I can no, I can no. I can some respects relate for sure. Uh, a three year film project. Uh, so okay. So I think this I'm going to put this podcast out before this goes out. Um, so people won't have to wait long after listening to this conversation. They're like a matter <laughs> of days to be able to actually go and watch it. And you have a book that is coming out. Uh, the same time or after yeah well it's actually it's it's coming out on the 29th so a few days before 29th september okay uh you can pre-order it already on amazon and waterstones and it's it's coming out all good bookshops and sainsbury's as well i believe wh smith and waterstones and all that so yeah the book the book for me because i I think i sort of became a a filmmaker by accident um i I actually was would start my first film that i made i was trying to write a book (laughs) and the characters were so beguiling that I thought they'd be wasted in a book that no one would read. Um, <laughs> so I, I got a mate of mine to come out and film. Uh, it was actually the Burmese Royal family. And that became a, f- a film called We Were Kings. I'm, I'm still really in love with that whole project. Um, and, you know, I wanted to be a writer. That was my, my, my passion. And I'm so glad now that actually this is the first time I've, I've been able to write a book and, get it published and i you know the, the series and the book are quite different things and i think both of them will i hope will be enjoyed for for you know different reasons they certainly tell a very similar story but yeah obviously when you write you get to go into things in a way that you can't do in film and yeah, likewise sure. some things on film that are not in the book you know something just i'm glad it's got both to be honest because i think you get to see different parts of this story it's a huge amount of fun first of you know first and foremost 
So how many? Um, and I, I want to glean a couple of uh, a couple of extra things out of your out of your journey. Like I said, without giving too much away. But so how many people actually did this with you? So was it one vehicle? Were there support vehicles? What was the logistics after you left? Um, and you know, you're, the wheels are going in Singapore. <laughs> Um, yeah, so the plan was to have two support vehicles. We wanted to keep it small because, you know, for safety reasons, for cost, I mean, we barely raised enough money to do it. In fact, we were still raising money when we left. <laughs> you know, we were still right till the end. You know, I was essentially building this bridge. And then as we were driving along, it, it was it was chaos. Um, so we had it was only small and everybody was essentially volunteers almost, you know, People, people were being paid, they were being paid sort of the bare minimum. Um, so we had eight people um, and three Land Rovers. Obviously, we had the Oxford Land Rover for 55. We had a 2001 uh, Defender 90. And then we had a 2015 uh, Defender 110. Um, and in terms of people, we had so myself, um, my old friend Marcus, uh, Englishman, uh, who's the expedition manager, very old friend of mine from, from Myanmar, we had Nat, the grandson, also from London. We had two filmmakers, Leo from America, Dave, sorry, Leo from France and David from America. We had a brilliant social media wizard called Tibby from Belgium. And then we had uh, our sort of security manager, a guy called Larry from Singapore. And then finally, probably my favorite character of them all was this guy called The Doc, who <laughs> um, was from Indonesia, Dr. Silverius Perber. And what he a great name. Nine Land Rovers. He's a Land Rover nut and in his spare time as a doctor. So he came along as both the expedition doctor and the mechanic. I mean, genius. Well, I mean, character. what a combination. So he was the, he was the human mechanic and yeah. the car mechanic. Yeah, and it's just, you know, I, I mean, he did a lot more of the car mechanic than the human mechanic, to be fair to him. Um, but, you know, in terms of saving money, it was a genius twist. Um, but yeah, the idea was, you know, so I said it. The, the, the team came together sort of by accident, partly by accident, partly by design. You know, half of them were old friends of mine. Half of them were people who just got attracted to the story. And um, all of them were signing up to it, not as a job. You know, it was it was a, the adventure of a lifetime. And it's, I think it always will be. And so the journey was planned to take four months, was it? Well, weirdly, in my sort of when I was in the sales mode, I said 100 days. Okay, yeah, 100 days, nice round number. Yeah, it sounded good. It was roughly that. Uh, It was roughly possible if nothing went wrong. Um, It ended up taking slightly longer than that um, because we got stuck in Nepal. Um, I mean, various, we we essentially, well, firstly, we we didn't realize you actually need to rest. That was something we hadn't really anticipated. (laughs) Or you just burn out. You you know, because you're filming and you're, you know, we didn't realize at the beginning what humans were capable of on an overland. But we ended up settling on a kind of a 5-2 pattern where we okay. would you know, travel five days, take two days off. And you also want to stop and see places. You know, yeah. You're in some incredible parts of the world. We got stuck in Nepal because the Chinese closed the border um, <sighs> for two weeks because they were celebrating the 70th, the 70th anniversary of the Communist Party. Um, well, there's worse places to be stuck. I love Nepal. Oh, well, I'd never been. And you're absolutely right, you know, because... There were places like Malaysia, for example, where we had powered through and barely stopped. Uh, you know, luckily I, I, you know, I lived in Myanmar, so I knew I knew Thailand very well. Northeast India, we spent a lot of time in, um, just because the roads were bad. And but you know, Nepal, we were in danger of just rattling through Nepal. But thank God, we actually spent you know sort of more than a week. Oh, I think about a week there, and we, we we took sort of all sorts of detours. Went to Pokhara, went and spent time with the Gurkhas. Oh, yeah, spent time in Kathmandu, just just kind of uh, recharging. It's, and it's a great city. Oh, incredible! I, I mean, as driving goes, definitely the most hair raising. <laughs> the drive from Kathmandu to the border with Tibet. I mean, I think the the Chinese are sort of known for discover discouraging uh, cross border travel, um, and there'd been a massive earthquake, obviously, in 2015 that flattened Kathmandu. And it also essentially damaged all the roads north of uh, Kathmandu to, to Tibet. And the Chinese hadn't bothered to really, uh, and the Nepalese couldn't afford to, but the Chinese hadn't bothered really to, to sort of repair the roads. So that drive from Kathmandu north to the Tibetan border, I mean, there's some fantastic photography, but it was kind of 
you know, Bolivian road of death, sort of looking down at a 2,000 foot drop, you know, with dodgy brakes. And oh, oh it still makes my stomach turn. <laughs> <laughs> Um, um, yeah, I mean, you know, second tier fun, so not fun at the time, but great in the retelling. Absolutely. How you went? You drove through Tibet. Mm. How was that? Like, how was it getting permission to go in? And how long did you, time did you spend there? What What's it like? My, my experience of Tibet is of the little bit that I know of the history and watching the film Seven Years in Tibet. So, <laughs> it's a great, a great film. It is a great film. A long ago. You know what? <laughs> Well, first of all, about how long did it take to get in? Ages. I mean, it was incredibly complicated. So Marcus, who was sort of tasked with uh, doing all the border crossing paperwork, um, he'd run a travel company in China and Myanmar. So there was no one sort of better qualified. It even aged him, you know, getting three foreign cars, eight, you know, eight different people of kind of five different nationalities into Tibet at this super sensitive time when the Communist Party was marking 70 years in power i mean it was kind of a you know a cluster f of <laughs> um, of, of of you know a, you know why now sort of thing yeah. so there was a certain amount of are we ever going to get in so partly i parked it because i thought we might you know and that's a whole story about what we would have done if we couldn't get in because we were a bit we were a bit screwed if we couldn't get through um the, re- sorry, the reason we'd gone through tibet i should just explain is that obviously we took a detour from the original route so they'd gone to Nepal, but they'd arrived at Nepal by coming through India, Pakistan, and through the Middle East. Mm-hmm. But we didn't want to do that because it was too dangerous. So that's why we, we did this major deviation at Nepal, where we went through China and Central Asia, which I wasn't too upset about because obviously I, everyone, I think, wants to go to Tibet. So, I mean, getting into Tibet, first of all, you know, I knew the history like you and I'd, I'd watched the films. The roads there are stupendous. Because the Chinese is part of their kind of um, policy of making it, you know, the one China policy, mm. um, have kind of smothered the place in beautiful tarmac motorways and 4G signal. So we had 4G internet all the way through. Um, I'm, so, I'm you know, kind of disappointed, to be honest. It is. You know, it is. Yeah. But you're also the only car on the road for days at a time. Wow. You're driving through what feels like, you know, Mars um, is where, you know, I can... I try to describe it. It's kind of driving through like the Scottish Highlands, but if your car was the size of a matchbox car. <laughs> okay. How, in the middle of COVID like, when no one else was on the road. Uh, yeah, but there were still speed cameras. Every, every 20 miles or so. It was bizarre. Not uh, that you probably had leave. a problem about the speed cameras with the Series well, 1. Well, they, they would leave. Yeah, there's not, to be honest, we were very, very rarely in danger of breaking. <laughs> or everywhere. But, you know, they would, they would do things like they would leave these like hulks of um, cars dressed up as police cars. They would just leave them on the side of the road. And you drive up and think, oh God, there's a police car. And you realize it was just, it was like a crash dummy in, in, a, like, in an old hulk. But it was just to slow people down because obviously the temptation was people would just treat this like the Autobahn in Germany because there's yeah. no one there. And they'd be doing 150 miles an hour on these beautiful tarmac roads. And you essentially, you get into, you get into Tibet and you stay on the same motorway until you leave out of Kyrgyzstan for two weeks. Um, and the most bizarre thing is you enter Tibet um, near a town called Jirong, and you then drive sort of two days um, over, you drive north, uh, northeast before you're supposed to be going northwest to the town of Shigatse to tell the Chinese authorities that you've arrived. <laughs> and you have to get your car sort of, you have to get a special Chinese driving license, you have to get special insurance, all these sorts of things. And the worst part about it was that we got there and went through all these tests and our guide, there were sort of two guides who were licensed to do overland trips through Tibet and we managed to get one of them. He kind of comes out of the police station quite sheepishly and says, everything's fine. One problem, uh, Oxford is 44 years too old. Um, it's actually, you're not allowed to drive a car in Tibet, a uh, foreign car in Tibet that's over 20 years old. And by this point, we've been in Tibet for two days. You know, we're 600 miles in and we've got another two weeks of driving to go. And so I was like, what are we supposed to do? He's like, just don't hit anything uh, and you'll be fine. Um, So, you know, you set off, you know, you're you're already on edge because you're in China. You've got the the history. We're heading into Xinjiang, which is even more sinister, you know, in terms of the politics there with, you know, the, the Uyghur concentration camps. And, um, you know, but then you're also thinking, if we get stopped at any point, 
this car is illegal. What we're doing is illegal. Um, so apart from that, um, you know, the food is not great. It's freezing cold. The altitude, <laughs> the altitude buggers you. Uh, you, know, you can't How high move. are you there? Uh, over four and a half thousand meters. Jeez. And then you drive past Everest, which is obviously almost twice as much. Uh, we had almost the whole team ended up in some sort of clinic with altitude sickness, you know, at various stages. Not fun. Everyone's got the shits. Uh, <laughs> that was my India experience, just having yeah, shit, well, yeah, shit for mean, three months. Is, <laughs> uh, there's nothing worse than a Tibetan pit latrine. I will, <laughs> I will go to my grave thinking that. And you know what? It, it, Larry, the Singaporean, whose parents are Chinese, and he'd been, he'd driven through Tibet twice before. And he said to me, he's like, he's like when you're here, you'll be asking, why did I come? Uh, you know, it is real hardship. You know, you're freezing cold. You can't breathe. Uh, long, long days of driving. He says, but I guarantee you, you know, in a year or so's time, you sat at home thinking, when can I go back? And I did not believe him at the time. Uh, but, but watching the footage when we were editing the series, it is just stupendous. And the Tibetan Plateau is... You know, it's one of the most curious and brilliant sort of, you know, um, biospheres on Earth. You know, it feeds sort of four of the, um, the major rivers in Asia. Um, the, you know, it's, the glaciers there and, you know, sort of a third of humanity kind of gets its, I think I might be getting my statistics wrong there, but, you know, gets its water from the glaciers that, that that's, you know, melt and, and come down from there. It's an extraordinary part of the world, never mind the human history. Mm. Amazing. Well, yeah, I've... I'd love to go there someday, but it's it's uh, it, it's such an well as you've very um, clearly described. It's quite such an arduous task to be able to get <laughs> in. It, you need a very good reason to want to go to all of that effort. Now, well, what I, do, I, was, I just I mean just sorry one more thing on that. I mean you know about the about the, the beauty of overlanding is that you know I spoke to people before and since you know they said oh well, did you go to Lhasa? No, because you fly to Lhasa or you can get the train to Lhasa. That's if you're going to Tibet, you go to Lhasa. That's how you get in as a tourist. So nope, never went to Lhasa. Went to this place, you know, Shigatse, sort of one of the second cities. And, um, you know, and then I went to a place called Mount Kailash, which is one of the world's holiest mountains. You know, it's, it's, it's the center of the universe for, for Buddhists. And, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, part of the cosmology of the, the Hindus. And, and, you know, there's very few people have ever been there because the only way you can really get there is drive. There's no train network. There's no planes that will take you there. You have to drive. And the beauty of doing this journey is that I have been to places, you know, now which are only accessible by a week or so of hard driving. You know, back in the day, you know, you, you know, many of these people, people in parts of that, you'd only be able to get there on a, on a mule, you know, and it, it was a real, it was a real lifetime achievement to go to, to these places. But there are still places on earth which you can only get to by driving through freezing cold and no air for two weeks. And that is Tibet. Wow. I mean, I, 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 I know you get this, but I weirdly find that appealing. <laughs> <laughs> As I said, now, now looking back, I mean, you can see the image of me there, like looking pretty grumpy at some points, you know, just, I think it was just the Tibetan food is bad. Uh, I mean, that's, that's really terrible to sort of just besmirch, but it's, it's not, um, it's not, I would not go back for the food and you're sort of, you, you know, you're living on that and it's freezing cold and you can't really sleep well because there's not enough air. You kind of you feel hungover. Yeah, I, I I know from being high up in Nepal, like every morning, yeah. waking up with kind of a headache and feeling feeling a little bit hungover, and it was just the altitude. Yeah, yeah. and I think that Measurable. was yeah. It just as I said, but incredible, absolutely incredible. <laughs> so the the road that you described earlier that was opened up after the Second World War by the Americans did mm. did you did that exist or doesn't exist or did you take it or are you in the area? Well, sadly, we weren't able to go because, um, so, you know, Burma, I said it had been my home for a long time, and, you know, knew it very well of, of, of the places we were going, it was the places I knew best. And Marcus had also, you know, the expedition manager had also uh, thought, if there's any people who could try and wangle our way to find this road, it would be us. The problem with the road is that it was in the far north, in an area that's uh, been essentially fought over since shortly after the Second World War. So you might know, but you know, Myanmar has been sort of riven with ethnic and sort of religious conflict ever since its independence in 1948. And, 
you know, <laughs> these fights were starting when Tim was driving three and 55. You know, this is when some of these wars kicked off and they're still going. And there's sort of this shifting mosaic of conflict. And the Stillwell Road has always been in the kind of some of the most remote and conflicted parts of North and Northeastern, uh, Northwestern Myanmar. And so nobody really knows how much of the road still exists, but we know that in 55, so 10 years after the war, it was already falling apart. Yeah. So the likelihood so, of it being in a state that yeah. you could pass is pretty slow, yeah, I would guess. Precisely. But what I wanted to do was drive up to it, get as close as we could, you know, have at least a bit of footage of us driving on a bit of it. Mm. But we, we got to Mandalay, sort of real central uh, Myanmar. And my friend Situ, who was guiding us through, just said, you'd be stupid. You know, there's RPG fights going on up there. They're blowing up bridges. Um, you know, you'd be, you'd be, you'd be stupid. Um, so we ended up having to detour into Manipur, um, whereas they crossed into Assam. Um, we crossed into Manipur and then through Nagaland, which was actually amazing. I mean, as you know, the Nagas sort of famous for being headhunters up until sort of the mid 20th century. Um, and in terms of driving, I would say actually Trump Nepal for its just sheer rough and ready, you know, gravel roads through mountains, just absolutely incredible. And we, we got ourselves into some serious trouble there, actually, which I will save for the series because episode okay. two, you'll find out what happened. Episode two. Met the Nagas. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but no, so we, we never got the chance to go to go back and see the Stillwell Road. It's something that I still hope to do one day, although Myanmar has obviously gone even worse since we finished. While you were doing the journey and it, w it was building and you were going through these countries and how was the, how were you communicating this to the world and what was the response like? Because <laughs> you said you had someone there for, who was sort of dealing with all your social aspects. Because I think that's when I became aware of it was the, the feed of, of information that was, was coming out while it was happening. Yeah, no, it's a very good question. I mean, obviously, you know, what's one of the biggest differences between, you know, then and now is obviously we were able to you know, communicate and broadcast this journey live as we were doing it. And there's definitely pros and cons to that, right? And I'd say probably more cons than pros. But it did allow, you know, thousands of people around the world to follow this journey. People who knew the story of the first Overland. You know, so many people have been inspired by reading the first Overland to become Overlanders. You know, I was amazed by the letters, emails, messages we got even before we left saying, we're so glad you're doing this because the first Overland, you know, changed my life. Yeah, and so there were some people who got to, um, you know, who got to follow the journey, who who would love to do it. So that was a huge privilege to be able to share it. Um, but it did always, you know, I guess on the con side, it, it just it meant that you were sort of you never really away. I think that's it. Yeah, you're not like fully detached from the world, which is yeah. uh, which is something I look forward to. <laughs> is not knowing what's happening in the rest of the world and not having to tell the rest of the world what I'm doing either. Uh, precisely. And there were moments where, you know, like Turkmenistan, where we genuinely were cut off from the world because the internet didn't work. Um, or, you know, in, in certain parts of, of, of the world where we genuinely just did, did lose signal. And I think, you know, like anyone does when they, when they put their phone down, they have the initial irritation of not being able to communicate. And then this kind of serene calm of actually just being able to enjoy whatever it is that you're doing. And, you know, the beautiful thing, again, about Oxford and about this journey is that you cannot fail but to be present and in the moment. And, you know, it allowed a lot of time for, you know, thought and reflection. And, you know, and then weirdly coming back, you know, just before COVID, I then wrote the book um, during lockdown, um, you know, which again made, gave me a completely different perspective on this kind of globe-trotting journey and how lucky we had been. You know, I was writing the book at a time and we didn't know which direction this was going. We didn't know whether travel would ever return, you know, and in some ways, you know, it's still, you know, China's still closed and it's still impossible really to recreate the journey we did. Yeah. Um, but I think we have lost something, I think, in, in having the ability to just immediately communicate and immediately transmit what we're doing. I think there's still um, a huge virtue in being able to stop, think, write and then deliver what it is you'd like to say yeah no i'm with you uh, well all i can say alex is that it's uh, a remarkable journey uh, and a brilliant story and i i can't wait to see the series when it comes out and read the book i i think that we are definitely missing this 
sort of unrelenting desire to just make shit happen on this <laughs> kind of scale where yeah. you know nothing's perfect and you just i don't know it's it's these kind of things happened with greater frequency 80 years ago 50 years ago even <laughs> and it just doesn't seem to exist so much in our sort of modern era and i'm kind of sad for that so i think it's a beautiful thing that uh i think you're very similar ages to me that uh there are people still doing it and just saying <laughs> you know what i i we can live we can live this sort of adventurous life still like it's still possible it is just make sure you do it in 1950s technology <laughs> well i'm all for that I I that's am. the answer i mean get rid of all these mod cons and modern luxuries and if you really really want to have an adventure do it like they did in the 50s <laughs> alex thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today it's been a marvelous uh conversation and you being able to just share this insight ahead of everything being released so i really appreciate it thank you mate cheers yeah.